touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And today we're going to talk about a cool piece of historic technology that, to this very day, at least as of the recording of this podcast, is still working in a certain form. In some places. In some places. Yeah, we're talking about, uh, this was actually Lauren's suggestion. We were looking at different fire prevention type technologies. Well, we, we had gotten a, a reader request, a listener request, because this is an audio podcast, and I <laughs> and I do not have the request open in front of me, so I apologize to the nice human person who sent this in. Um, someone requested that we do a, a episode about fire alarms. Right. And in initial research, I there's so much that that is commercial out there. Yeah. That's immediately available and uh and we were kind of running up to a deadline, but I realized that um that the original fire alarm system, a telegraph system in Boston, yeah, in yeah. the 1800s. Yeah, 1850. Is fascinating. Yeah, this this turned out to be an amazing topic. So, we decided to tackle this System that was uh, installed in 1852. We're not there yet, by the way. Not at all. We're gonna we're gonna work our way up to 1852. But it was installed in 1852, and it's still working today. Now, we'll address that in greater detail as the episode goes on. So, uh, but it's still really kind of remarkable to think of this this system that's over 150 years old still running, still in place. So let's talk about what necessitated it. Now, really. To think about it is is to talk about the rise of the construction of cities, which often ended up being rapid and unplanned. Right. And made a material that we will generously call flammable. Uh, right. There, there wasn't so many steel beams and, and concrete being used yeah, in, even, in, say, the 1700s. Right. Even even brick houses would have wooden, uh, wooden window frames, frames or mm-hmm. door frames or flooring or whatever. And if a fire got hot enough, it could actually cause those uh, materials to burst into flame, even if they didn't have direct contact, contact with the flames right. themselves. It would create what is really called a firestorm. Where the fire gets so hot, it starts to be able to, it, it just sort of balloons out of control. Right. And, uh, uh, an early example of this, one that was absolutely devastating, we have to look back all the way to 1666, the Great Fire of London. Now this affected the city of London, which is a square mile. That's tiny compared to metropolitan London, right? But this, Fire devastated that part of London and stretched a little bit beyond those borders, depending upon you know which sides you're talking about, destroying more than 10,000 houses in the process. And it's it was an enormously uh, devastating fire. And so that was an example of something that really showed that there was a need now that we had these cities that were really densely populated with lots and lots of houses that are built incredibly close together. Some of them... So close that even in an alleyway, the the uh, upper stories would be in contact with each other. So you might have enough room at the at the ground level to walk through, but if you were to look up, you wouldn't see sky. Wow, that's kind of terrifying. Yeah, it's a little creepy. You know, it's almost like every alleyway is really just becomes a tunnel because these these upper stories of these buildings are we're meeting leaning each other. and sure. Yeah, yeah. So before 1845 in Boston, here's how a typical fire would be reported. Uh, so, so someone would be assigned the task in, in a particular neighborhood or area of town that if, if fire broke out, 
they would um, go run to the nearest church and and ring the church bells right and the steeple. You had people also who would carry wooden rattles mm-hmm. and rattle them or just holler. Yeah. Uh, so Boston ended up having this this real problem. I mean, they they called it hallooing a fire because. Really, you're just kind of hooting and hollering, trying to get people's attention. But that's not terribly precise. In fact, it could be very confusing. If anyone has ever been in a large city and heard a noise, it could be really hard to detect where that noise is coming from, let alone a precise location. It's hard just to even figure out the general direction sometimes, just the way sound travels and bounces around. Sure, and the speed of response is so important in these kind of things, especially back in in those days when containing a fire would absolutely be. I mean, not that that's not true these days, but, but yeah, it, it could spread so it much could more spread quickly. So much more, right. the, I mean, the, you know, every the the basic building materials that were a lot of these buildings were made of were very flammable. There there wasn't a lot of flame retardant type material being mixed in at that time, so you had a, a serious need to have a quick response. And unfortunately, what was happening was that fire engines would leave the fire station with no way of knowing where the actual fire was. And so they essentially go off in all different directions trying to find the fire. It was really only if a fire had gotten so huge as you con- could see it. Yeah. And by then, getting it under control is even more difficult. Sure. So uh, at the time, you would have a fire foreman who would actually shout directions through a trumpet. Like a speaking trumpet? Uh-huh, right. Like, like a um, cheerleader's... Um, yeah, a megaphone. Megaphone kind of thing. Yeah, thing. Right. Yeah. Thank you. They People would... other than cheerleaders use them. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Uh, and so one of the awards that would be given away to firefighters for distinguished service was a silver trumpet. That was kind of saying, in the uh, execution of your duty, you have done uh, amazing service. And keep in mind that a lot of these uh, firefighters were volunteer firefighters. This was not the necessarily... Not in Boston, anyway. It's not necessarily the era of private firefighting companies, which were also a thing uh, to the point where there were companies that would compete with one another or, or not turn away service based yeah. on. Um, yeah, they'd show up and they'd be like, we'll put out that fire. But first, you got to pay us. Not the most altruistic of firefighting efforts, but in this case, we're talking about citizens and volunteers, really. Right. But that was before 1845. Now, in 1844, a certain uh, inventor created something that would change the world. Actually, let me take this back just a tiny bit. Okay. And because um, you were you were about to talk about Samuel Morse. I, I am. <laughs> but you 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 have something to to interject. I do have something to interject. Okay. The, the the thing is that um that Samuel Morse was not the inventor of the telegraph. He wasn't even That's the true. sole inventor of Morse code. Um the uh the, the the first known telegraph line was erected in 1837 by Charles Whitstone and William Cook in the UK. Um this was a line between Euston and Camden Town on the um London and Birmingham Railway. Okay. And uh, it, it was this complex five-line, five-needle system that mm. would point to different letters on a grid by reversing the direction of the current flowing through these five wires. Gotcha. And um, uh, it was it was pretty unwieldy. Those those you know having five wires per terminal was really expensive and really complex. Um, especially for 1837. But these those two gentlemen had been kind of independently. Working through the concepts that Michael Faraday were talking was talking about and in creating this telegraph technology, Samuel Morse was the first one to complete a line here in the States 
that line opened up between D.C. and Baltimore in 1844. Mm-hmm. Um, the first message he sent in his uh, early version of Morse code was, what hath God wrought? Yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, that that's a famous message that, uh, boy, a little apocalyptic there in a way. But uh, yeah, so you might be wondering, how do, does this system actually work? And it's, right. it's pretty cool. So. Uh, so we, you know what a, we've talked about circuits quite a bit on this podcast, but a circuit, you know, that's essentially a pathway that electricity can take. Now, if you have what is called an open circuit, that means that electricity can't pass all the way through the circuit. There's something, there's a gap there, so it can no longer travel and continue its path. A closed circuit means that it's completely Complete. closed. And yeah, and, the, and electricity can go all the way through the pathway. So if you were to have an open circuit, a telegraph line that's an open circuit, and you had a switch, in this case, a telegraph key, that when you press the switch, it closes the circuit so that electricity can flow through. On the other end of that circuit is a receiving station that when it receives this, an electromagnet activates because we know, you know, when you have electricity going through an electromagnet, it creates a magnetic force. Sure. The magnetic force pulls on one end of a lever the other end of the lever is attached to a pen that comes into contact with a rolling piece of paper. And so as you hold down the key, the pen stays in contact with the paper because electricity is flowing through and it's activated that electromagnetic coil. When you let go of the key, electricity stops flowing, the magnetic coil lets go, and the pen, the, the lever drops, lifting the pen off the paper or removing the paper from the pen. It all depends on the actual uh, implementation of this technology because there were different models of telegraph machines. Uh, so by doing a series of taps, you can create dots and dashes on the paper as the pen moves on and off of it. That in turn would be interpreted as Morse code. So you would have a certain series of dots and dashes representing each letter of the alphabet, also numbers, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was your your basic telegraph station. You had the sending and the receiving. And then you might have another circuit that is on the receiving end where they can send messages back. Right. And and that specific battery switch electromagnet rig was Morse's invention. There we go. And that would become really important in what we're about to, to discuss, the idea of using this in a way beyond sending a message and making it an actual alert system. Uh, so that comes up to 1845. So 1844, Morse has, has completed this and demonstrated it, and it's shown to be an effective means of communication. That uh, is- yeah, it was, it was really popular in, in the news. Uh, you know, every, it was what everyone was talking about in scientific circles. Because finally, you could get news from from one city to another city in uh, faster than a horse right much faster than any other means of transportation at that time so 1845 a year after morse has really has really broken this open in the US a man named Do- Dr William F Channing uh, a native of Boston and a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania and of Harvard with a medical degree published an article in the Boston Daily Advertiser and it was all about creating a telegraph based fire alarm system for Boston. It was it, it was an article that was saying, "Hey, this dude Morse has this pretty cool thing. We can use that thing." Yeah, and and the problems that we have right now in Boston mainly that the by the time an alarm gets to a fire station, it's almost too late and the fire station doesn't even really know where the fire is. This solves both of those problems because the communication is immediate and because of the way we can design this, it can be precise so that 
every single alarm station that we erect that's part of the system will have its own unique identifier. Right. So that way we know where the fire is, not just that it's happened, but where it is. And that way we have a much faster response time. Yeah. So, so he, he was recommending not only the, the application of this technology, but an organization system built around it. Yeah. He had an entire infrastructure that he proposed. And uh, this is what eventually gets put in place in Boston, more or less. I mean, it's almost exactly what he had proposed, although it did have to go through some refining and tweaking because this was a brand new system. No one had tried it before. And of course, as anyone who has worked with any type of technology knows, bugs will pop up as you know, you'll you'll think, oh, well, based upon electronic principles, this should work perfectly. And Why is this not, not working so perfectly? I've got to figure this out. Oh, this switch was turned on in open form. It should be closed. <laughs> but so so he joined up with an electrical engineer, um, uh, Moses G. Farmer. Yeah. Yeah. Moses G. Farmer, uh, interesting guy. He had worked in a civil engineer's office for a while. He was also a school principal oh. for a while. Uh, and he had an affinity for machines. In fact, the first machine he had built that I could find anyway, he may have worked on other ones before this, but he created a machine that could print paper window shades. Uh, and then he, when Morse really got the telegraph going, he became interested in uh, telegraph machines, began to work on them, and eventually was put in charge of the telegraph line between Boston and Newburyport, Massachusetts in 1848. And actually got to the point where he had sort of a managerial position. He would help open new telegraph offices in the area and make sure that the connections were there and everything along those lines. He and Dr. Channing kind of put their heads together and, and came up with this, this, uh, proposal. And now in 1848, uh, Farmer actually invented an electric striking apparatus for the fire alarm service because part of this overall infrastructure they were talking about was not just something that would notify the fire stations that there was a fire, but also have an alarm system to alert the citizens that a fire was in the area. Yeah, yeah, something that would simultaneously alert um, all the other, like, like you know, from a grand central station, it would alert all of the stations along with the citizenship. Right, exactly. So this way, if you've ever lived in a place that has uh, uh, an orchestrated alarm system, something like in, in here in Atlanta... We talk about tornado alarms, that if you hear the tornado sirens go off, you know there's a tornado in the area. Uh, the This is sort of a similar thing. The the bells would ring uh, to alert citizens. And ideally, in, in the actual proposal, they had talked about connecting all the church bells in Boston to the system so that they would all ring simultaneously and simultaneously in a pattern that would identify the location of the fire. So in other words, once you knew what the different patterns were, you would know where the fire was, no matter where you were in the city of Boston, by the sound of the bells ringing. As it turns out, getting all the bells in a city to ring simultaneously is somewhat of a non-trivial problem. That's complex. Yeah. Trying to get, I mean, you're talking about physical circuits here. These right. are physical wires, mm-hmm. like over over the air wires. I mean, these are wires that are above ground. Above ground, uh, you know, held up on rooftops of houses. Supported by glass insulators. Mm-hmm. You know, the, and in fact, there's actually some discrepancy about whether or not the original wires were, were insulated at all. Yeah. Yeah. I Which mean, because at, at, at the time, uh, the, the, the insulation um, insulation technology was was glass, tar, pitch. 
Yeah, there were no plastics. There were there were no plastics. Um, they they started getting into um to ceramics and stuff like that a little bit later, but that wouldn't be for another couple decades, I don't think. Now, in Channing's writing, he refers to it as being insulated, and then other writings refer to them being not insulated. So here's the thing: because we're talking about historical documents and historical uh uh, uh events. And this is a time where this is before the digital age. Clearly, we're talking the 1850s. The records are uh, sparse and not all of them are uh, not all of them agree with one another. Sure, sure. There are discrepancies. We, we, we depend on um, on correspondence and patents and stuff like that. Newspaper I, I, articles. Newspaper articles. I have a whole new respect for Holly and Tracy over at uh, Stuff, Stuff You Missed in History, History Class. class. Plug. Yeah. <laughs> We need a we need to have a little bell sound every time we we plug one of our our sister podcasts. Um I, but they do amazing work and yeah, when this really opens up your eyes to how complex it becomes. So, we've got Farmer and we've got Channing working on this proposed system and it wasn't until 1851 that they actually presented their proposal to the city uh, the Boston city government. And uh, they they argued that this would be a way that would save lots of money in the long run because Fires were still an, a big issue, a big fear. They mm-hmm. happened. I mean, it was a, a scary thing that could completely devastate an entire city or at least districts of a city. There are multiple districts within the city of Boston. Uh, and actually, their proposal uh, incorporated that so that each district had its own set of boxes. And in fact, uh, as we'll talk about, the the way that boxes were encoded, it would tell the operator first which district was being affected and then tell the operator which box was the one that had been uh, uh, activated. So they send this proposal to the Boston city government in 1851 and uh, the the government approves it and work begins on the system on September 7th, 1851. Uh, originally, depending upon whom you ask, because there are discrepancies, uh, this system had three box circuits, three bell circuits, 40 alarm boxes. 39 to 45. 40, yeah, it all depends. Like there's one source that was very definitively saying, no, there were 41 boxes. And another one that says, no, there were 39. I'm going with 40-ish. Nice round number. We'll say ish. Yeah. 40-ish boxes. Uh, 16 to 19 alarm bells. A little and, more discrepancy. And one central office. Yes, one central office, which was... This was the office through which all communication would pass. So uh, the idea being that when someone would uh, would activate one of these alarm boxes, the message would come to the central office that the operator of the central office could then pass uh, communication to the nearest fire stations. Mm-hmm. Oh, originally, it was not recorded on paper um, the way right. that we were talking about earlier. Originally, there it was just manned 24 hours a day. Right. It, Channing had said that, a a paper recording would be valuable because, for one thing, it would help keep track of all the different times that the alarm was signaled. Because even in the early days, there was worry that prankish people... Something would be missed or that, you know, um, eventually there would be finger pointing that would happen due to some terrible something or another. Or someone just ends up having a hankering for triggering alarms when there are no fires at all. Uh, it was an idea of this way we keep a record of it. It becomes more of an official thing. It, uh, you know, that'll cut down on misuse of the system was really, that was the main f- focus, but also just to keep an eye on different parts of the city saying, well, this one part of the city gets, uh, there are more alarms trip there than anywhere else. Mm-hmm. 
that would bring we need more to, attention. There. Sure, sure. Uh, and Boston would have the first the first paper recorder system for one of these um, telegraph fire alarms. But yeah, but that, that would be in a few for, years. Yeah. yeah, but that was that was what Channing had hoped to do at the mm-hmm. very beginning. But uh, it would be a few years before that happens. So. What happens is that the the operator sees it. They send out the alert to the to the uh, uh, the respective fire stations. There might be more than one to say this alarm box was triggered. You need to go there. And then the the firefighters would there there's be someone at the fire fire station who would be manning the receiving station to get that message. Who would then pull the uh, bell to to alert the firefighters. Let's go. And give them the message of this is where you need to go. This is the alarm box that was triggered. Go to that location and, mm-hmm. and fight the fire. So uh, it was an ingenious system. He had proposed that the power would come from two sources outside the facility so that if one source failed, the other one would continue. And later they were able to uh, have a gasoline powered generator. Uh, as as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that way, even if the entire city lost power, the system would still remain viable. So telephone lines go down, electric power lines go down. This This system. Yeah. So it's still working. That was, and you know, it's one of the, the things that really set it apart from a lot of other systems that people were proposing at the time. So, uh, there were about 40 miles of wire in this original system. Actually, depending upon the source, it gets up to about 48 miles. It was technically 24 miles, but they made redundant circuits. Right, so that which way, is another really brilliant thing about the system. Exactly. Yeah. The redundancy is so important because you're talking about fire. I mean, this is a dangerous and destructive force. And above ground cables. Yeah, and abru- exactly. And Boston has been known from time to time to have snow and ice storms. Uh, very occasionally. So uh, it gets wicked cold in Boston. <laughs> and so sometimes uh, these these lines can break. And so by creating redundancy, it made the, made the system more robust. Uh, so there are two sets of these lines, 40 miles or so, 40 to 48 miles of wire. And uh, the actual call boxes or alarm boxes were locked. They had a, a lock on them. They were painted black mm-hmm. at first. Right. Um, until about the 1870s, only trusted people in the area were given keys. Yeah. And, um, and there were instructions on the little key fob. I've seen a couple of museum, uh, museum pieces that, oh, wow. that have them. Where and, it actually uh, shows it. Uh-huh. And, uh, uh, when eventually the system got too big to handle and they realized they were doing everyone a disservice by keeping these locked and making someone who wanted to report a fire go find one of these people who held a key. Right. Like, you know, say someone is on vacation out of town. That makes it a little more difficult. Like, well, when they get back, we can tell them that their house burned down. Um, yeah. So this it, it was locked away. But if you were to unlock the system, open up the door. Uh, inside was an interesting pairing. There was a hand crank and there was a telegraph key. Now, the hand crank was what the, in, the person was expected to use. The person, the, the person who had been entrusted with the key. And by turning the crank, it would be the same effect as if you were sending a telegraph from a sending station to a receiving station. The, the, the crank would turn a wheel and the wheel would have on it essentially contacts. It would, it would, push a little spring-powered uh, uh, circuit 
closed mm-hmm. and complete the circuit to the uh, the the central station. So turning the the crank turns the wheel. The wheel turns around and around, and that creates this pattern of dots and dashes that's unique to that to particular that box. box. Each box has its own pattern, so that way when the operator receives it, they can they decode can say, "Oh, it. this is box forty-one, right. which happens to be on the street of such and such and such and such." Right. And so uh, the the first bit of the wheel would actually have the uh, the 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 district number. So that they know generally what part of Boston it was in. And then the next part would actually have the box's identity. And uh, the wheel, by the way, was or the crank was weighted so that when you were done turning it, it would move into its rest position so that it would be ready to give the exact right information as soon as you started turning it again. Right. Uh, instructions were, by the way, to to only do this once, yeah. because if you kept repeating the signal, it would uh, clog. It, it could interfere with itself in the lines. Yeah, exactly. If you were to continue this, it could end up causing confusion. You wouldn't necessarily know where the beginning and end of the message was. That could cost you valuable minutes, which is a huge thing when you're talking about fighting a fire that could go out of control, particularly in a city, again, that has these problems of this really dense population and flammable building materials. So uh, the idea was that uh, the through batteries and this backup generator and the incoming power that the system would always be available. And assuming that at least one of the two the two circuits, circuits was for whole. each box was mm-hmm. whole. Yeah, you're you're in good shape. You're good. Yeah. Now, uh, this is really kind of a, an ingenious way of making this possible for even someone who has no idea how telegraphs work. All they have to do is turn a crank once. That's it. Right. Well, they have to unlock the box first, obviously. Now, if you got someone there at the station or at the uh, alarm box, someone who, generally speaking, is is with the firefighters. Uh, who is trained in, in the telegraph system, they could use the actual key, the telegraph key that was also inside the box to send specific messages back to the uh, the operator. So let's say that the fire itself is uh, around the corner from where the alarm box is. That might be valuable information for more incoming engines saying, uh, there's, uh, you need to come up through blah, blah, blah street in order to get to where the fire is. That kind of thing. So it could give more information, but that was generally meant for people who are part of this whole system, not, right, right. not, not the average citizen. Yeah. They also did eventually, although they never managed to sync up all of the church bells in the city, um, they did install alarm bells in the boxes that would, um, once, once the operator had sent out a signal to the relevant fire stations, some of, some of the boxes, uh, alarms would sound letting Anyone else who was nearby in the area know that there's a fire. This this call yeah. box down here has reported a fire. Right, and and uh, the way that would work is exactly the same way, really, as the telegraph machine. You had mm-hmm. an electromagnetic coil in there that would pull back a lever that was on a spring, so the spring would create tension. And uh, once the electromagnetic s- signal went away, once the electricity went out, it would release that and it would strike, the lever would strike a bell mm-hmm. and it would do this multiple times in, you know, several times a second. So you would get that ding, 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 ding sound. Yeah. Uh, you, you would, it was coded, for example, with, with box 41, it would be a, a, a bell strike four times, a slight pause and a bell strike one. Wow. I did not know that. I didn't come across that. That's yeah. kind of cool. So when you get up into the thousands, you got to count a lot. <laughs> 
Because by the way, when when it first started, obviously we're talking, you know, about forty or forty-ish boxes, but uh, eventually there would be more than two thousand of these installed throughout Boston. Some of them in public and private buildings, some of them on on actual streets, uh, and of course the mechanism would change as far as the interface would change. But we'll get into that. The me- that interface would change, but the basic principle of what is we're talking about here has remained. Largely unchanged since, since 1851. Yeah, oh, 50, 50, 51 was yeah. when they started building it. Yeah, 51, 52. That's fair. Uh, 52 was just when it was uh, completed. Implemented, right? Yeah, and even even when I say completed, there were still lots of bugs to work out. So it wouldn't be until probably the mid 1850s that the system was what you would call robust. Early sure. times, they were like, "Ooh, we just found out something else that we did not anticipate when we first started building this thing." Yeah, yeah. Uh, April 28th, 1852 uh, was the official installation date, I believe. April 28th. So um, when did the first alarm come in? April 29th. Wow. Not even a full day old and the alarm comes in. There's actually another story that we'll get to later on that's very similar to this. Yeah. April 28th, 1852. The system is up. The system's in place. They can identify what box is, is sounding the alarm. And it did not take but uh, a day. You know, it was 18, April 29th, 1852 at 8.25 p.m., as it turns out, because mm-hmm. people would take note of when the alarms came in. The first alarm was received over the system. And uh, uh, actually, uh, Moses Farmer would become uh, the superintendent of the fire alarm system. And uh, it was shown to be effective, although, it, again, they had to tweak it multiple times over the next few years. Meanwhile... Uh, around 1855, that's when a man named John Nelson Gamewell, who was a postmaster and telegraph company agent from South Carolina, attended a lecture that Dr. Channing held about the telegraph system. And that same year, just a little bit later, Gamewell ended up purchasing the regional rights for marketing the system in the southern United States. The south and the west, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. There was a, uh, well, the southern United States and the western territories. We don't really talk about them in the 1850s. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so they, you might be noticing 1850s. If you know your United States history, something major is about to happen. Uh, and that actually shakes things up a bit. But in 1857, Channing and Farmer issued a patent. And that patent is uh, for the invention that they called Improvement in Electric Magnetic Fire Alarm Telegraphs for Cities. Is that specific? Um, and in, it was interesting. I read this patent. This patent, they actually filed for it in 1855, and they got the the pa- patent issued they in 1857. It. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting because you know the, I I explained the system they used, where they went with what was essentially an open circuit that would close as these wheels would turn. Right? Uh, they had also allowed for a version where it would be a closed circuit. So in other words, electricity is always flowing through the circuit. But when you turn the wheel, the wheel interrupts that electricity mm-hmm. and it creates the the same sort of code. It just does it using an open, you know, open interruptions as opposed to closed signals. So it was they were saying, you know, you could do this either, either way. way. Yeah, it doesn't doesn't matter which one you choose. It's going to work. You just have to be consistent. That's the only important part is being consistent and the redundancy. They stress that as well. But, uh, the, and the patent is, by the way, it's available to read. If you go, uh, I use Google Patent Search. It actually goes back further than a lot of the other patent it's really searches. Great. Yeah. Yeah. And if you just put in improvement in electric magnetic fire alarm telegraphs for cities, it'll pop right up. It's, uh, it's a fun read. I mean, you know, as patents go, it's, 
It's actually, I would argue it's easier to understand than a lot of modern patents. A lot of modern patents fall into this, uh, this habit of using, uh, uh, Integrated lang- legalese. Yeah. Well, they're using language that is specifically, has been specifically evolved for patents. And it gets, you know, those who, what is it? It's, it's something in the art. It's like those who are, uh, knowledgeable in the art will see that blah, 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 blah. And you start reading it and you're thinking, this sounds like, this sounds like this patent could easily be one quarter the length if they dropped all those all kind the of kind of pretension. Of yeah, it. yeah, and this one predates a lot of that, so it's sure. pretty straightforward. I think it, the patent issued was in the seventeen thousands at that point, so it's pretty early in the patent system. So, eighteen fifty nine, a couple things happened. First of all, Moses Farmer continues to innovate in different areas. He he was really one of those. Uh, he was a tinkerer. Yeah, one of those engineers back when things were just starting to really take off, like uh, like lights, light bulbs. He invented electric lights. Yeah. Yep, he invented a, an incandescent electric lamp. Uh, he he didn't invent the light bulb or anything. Of course, Edison didn't either. But, uh, <laughs> right, but- uh, he he invented a type of lamp that was one of the earlier incandescent electric lamps. And uh, the same year, uh, Gamewell purchased the patents. Yeah, for, he, he purchased everything from Channing and Farmer for for the, for the telegraph system. Yep, he wanted to start installing this in cities everywhere. He wanted he he saw the value in it, and uh, he purchased the entire essentially the entire uh, intellectual property, if you will, of how this was done. And Channing and Farmer essentially stepped back at this point. They had invented it, and now they no longer play a direct role. Uh, so here's Gamewell, 1859. He's bought all this stuff. He's ready to go. It's time to become an industrialist when the Civil War breaks out. Now, Gamewell's from South Carolina. He goes back to South Carolina. At the conclusion of the Civil War, the United States government decided to do something somewhat controversial for those in the southern states. They they seized a lot of patents um, yeah. that were held by um, Confederate. Yeah. Yep. Yep. It turned out they uh, said and this sold, is, and sold, sold them at public auction. Yeah, they said, these are our property. We'll sell them at auction now. So Gamewell loses his patents. Uh, in 1867, John F. Kennard goes to Washington D.C. to go to one of these auctions. He had planned on purchasing the patents that Gamewell had owned, and he had originally planned on spending about twenty grand on it. And I believe that this was um, a former employee or a yeah. current employee. Was a, he, he was he was affiliated. He, had, he with was Gamewell. affiliated with Gamewell. Uh, he was ready to pay twenty grand for these patents. Ended up paying slightly short of ninety bucks for all of them, and he gave them. He back just to gave Gamewell. them back to Gamewell. He's like, "Here you go, boss." And Gamewell said, "I see this as the beginning of a beautiful friendship." <laughs> and they went into business together. So they together they created the Gamewell uh, uh, Telegraph Company, the Fire Alarm Telegraph Company. And uh, so they go into business and start to really push this. Right. Um, meanwhile, I do want to say um, uh, telegraphy was was big. Uh, around 1861, you got the first transcontinental uh, telegraph line out to California, mm-hmm. which beat the transcontinental railroad by eight years. Yeah. FYI. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, well, we had a first. Laying cables easier than laying railway ties, as it turns out. It is. That's true. But, you know, we, we also had the first transatlantic cable yeah, three years before a transcontinental that's railroad. Incredible. Yeah. Um, I, it failed two years after it was installed, but that's beside the point. Beside the point entirely. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, 
in those early 1860s, a few other cities were starting to install these telegraph fire alarm systems, uh, you, you know, usually through citizen petitions to the government going like they have this cool thing that lets them not die in fires. We want that. Yeah. Can we not die in fires, please? Yes. Uh, it became a common plea in American <laughs> cities in the 1850s and 60s. Um, you know, one of those things that's not spelled out in the Constitution, but, you know, you just figure that goes into the whole life and liberty thing. Mm-hmm. Um, in 1864, hooked systems were introduced in alarm boxes. Yeah, and so this was an alternate to that um, hand crank. Hand crank, right. right. So you th- could this simply was... pull a hook to generate the correct. Exactly. Yeah, this was this was the ones. Yeah, the Boston system went from. Uh, well, a few alarm boxes in 1864 went from these hand cranks to the hook system. It was decided that this simplified it and it. Uh, created less of a chance of failure because once the hook went back into place, the wheel was ready to go. It, it reduced the odds that someone was going to make the wheel rotate more than once, for one thing. Right. Because right. you just had to pull the hook once. Um, I, I, I think kind of similar to the to the concept between push button and rotary telephones. Like, it was just less things to screw up. Right. Yeah. The few, the more idiot-proof you make it, <laughs> the better. Yes. Uh, in 18, by 1868, all of the signal boxes in Boston had been replaced with that type of, uh, of, of alarm system. And uh, in 1866... Moses Farmer continued his uh, innovative work. He patented a self-exciting dynamo. I don't want to go into any more detail about that. I just want you to try and imagine what a self-exciting dynamo is. If you have an idea of what a self-exciting dynamo is, and funny ideas are better than not funny ideas, you should let us know. Text stuff at discovery.com because I want to see it. And if you use that email address, we both get to see it. All right. But uh, we've got a lot more to talk about with this fire system, as well as an actual fire that broke out shortly, just just two decades after the system was in place and what happened at that time. But before we get into that, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. All right, we're back. And you were going to uh, bring us up to date with, what, 1869? Right, right. Around this time, there were about 112 alarm boxes in service in Boston. Um, Systems were in place in 38 cities across the U.S. And according to Gamewell, these systems cost um, $2,500 to $10,000 to set up, which in the day was was like forty-five dollars to $179,000. Dollars in in today's but but just that, that's a whole system right that's, that's an entire system so right. so when you think about it that's incredibly cheap compared to the devastation of a fire a right. major fire right you know it, it was also right and this is this is why they were starting to become over the next couple of decades they would be rolling out in enormous numbers right so partially because yeah <laughs> okay so um so 1872. Uh, this is what was known as the Great Boston Fire. Uh, it was not a pleasant experience. Uh, so 1872, a fire begins in the basement of a five-story warehouse. We're still not sure what caused it. Uh, it, it was on um, Kingston and uh, Summer Streets. Yep. On uh, November 9th, 1872, uh, right. it, it might have been caused by a coal spark from a steam boiler. So in other words, this is a boiler that you put water in it, you create a fire from coal, the fire heats up the water, which converts it to steam that then can be used to heat a building or do other work. So there's some suspicion that perhaps a spark from this coal fire is what started it all off. At any rate, a fire started and the building was what we would call crazy flammable or even 
inflammable because they mean the same thing. Completely engulfed pretty shortly. Um, this, this, this occurred around 7 p.m. and at 7.24, the first fire alarm was triggered. Right. And it was triggered at Summer and Lincoln Streets at box number 52. And, uh, from what I understand, citizens kind of took their time, uh, triggering the alarm because people just assume someone else had already done it. This, I think, falls under that category that a lot of us fall victim to, the idea that someone smarter than us has (laughs) taken care of the problem. That that whole someone else's problem, kind of. Or or just that I would do something, but I'm sure someone else has already done it. Not not, It's not so much apathy as it is uh, uh, absolute uh, uh, surety that you are not the most competent person in the area. I have been victim of this, um, <laughs> as I'm sure most people have. But at any rate, additional alarms were struck at 7.29, 7.34, and 7.45, and 8 p.m., which means this was a five-alarm fire. Which is where that phrase comes from. Yep. Yes, uh, and, you know, uh, with the idea being that the more boxes are involved in calling out the alarm, the bigger a fire is. Exactly. So there you go. If you've ever heard of five-alarm fire and wondered where it came from, it essentially comes from this. It's the idea of... Multiple alarms triggered for a single fire. This one was a doozy. Uh, there were other boxes, of course, that were involved, Box 48 and Box 123, which for some reason were near Box 52. The numbering system in Boston, I'm sure, was mostly based on uh, chronology, meaning that if you had started off with 40 or 41 boxes and then you add in one part of the city versus another – it makes about as much sense as the house numbering system in certain parts of Atlanta, where you think, oh, well, 3,300 will be net. Wait, now I'm in the 5,200s. What happened? Now it's going backwards. What happened? Yeah. All these streets are named Peachtree. <laughs> that also does not help. Uh, so uh, anyway, at least three boxes, probably more, were uh, involved in signaling alarms to the central operator. Yeah. And so pretty soon, by 745, Every single fire station in Boston had been alerted to this fire and to where the where it was coming from. Um, um, uh, help came in from from all around Boston, as as far away as uh, uh, New Haven, Connecticut, and Manchester, Manchester, New Hampshire. Yeah, it's kind of crazy how far away they were. There were uh, firefighters who were putting equipment on railroads uh, on not railroads, but on trains, which were in turn on railroads and shipping them down to Boston in response to this fire. Because, you know, when you're talking about a fire of this magnitude and you're talking about the technology of 1872, it's not like they're going to necessarily be able to get it under control in a matter of hours. The The Great Fire of London, which happened back in 1666, that took three days to get to put, to out. put out. Yeah. So, uh, you know, th- these fires could last a really long time. Now, despite this amazing fire alert system, there were still huge problems in fighting this fire, which had nothing. The, the problems had nothing to do with the system. The system worked just as it was intended. The alarm system, right? Um, the hoses, the fire hoses at the time, unfortunately, were not standardized. So and some... neither were the hydrants. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. the fire mm-hmm. hydrants weren't standardized. Mm-hmm. Neither were the hoses, which meant that some hoses would not fit some hydrants. That's a problem. Yes. Let's see. There, there was a there was a terrible outbreak of equine distemper, a.k.a. Yeah. strangles. Uh, yeah, horse which, flu. Horse flu, which is a bacterial infection caused by um, by a strain of, of strep. So this so, is an extremely um, virulent, fast-acting virus that is 
frequently fatal, I believe. Yeah. And, and, and even if it didn't kill a horse, the horse was essentially out of commission. Now, this right. is again, and, at a and time it had before, to be quarantined. Right. So this is before automotives. This is when, you know, you, your fire engines were horse drawn. Right. So now there aren't any horses at this time. That means that they had to be man drawn. Yeah. Yeah. You'd hook up a team of men to your fire engine and have them tug it to wherever it was that needed to go. So you had hydrants and hoses that didn't necessarily fit each other. There was also a water pressure problem in that particular district. This was in a commercial district of Boston. So lots of warehouses and factories, not very many homes in this part of Boston, but lots of uh, commercial buildings. And in fact, the fire chief of Boston had been telling the city for a couple of years that they really needed to address the problem of water pressure, but no one had really taken any efforts to do it, uh, mostly because, you know, at the time, the accusations are all about how everything was very political and they didn't want to uh, take attention away from more political matters to deal with this very practical problem. However, because the water pressure was low, it wasn't sufficient to get water to the higher levels of oh, some of these warehouses. Mm-hmm. And because we're talking about warehouses that were some were four or five stories tall, they were taller than most fire ladders were. So firefighters couldn't get to where the flames actually were, either with water or with ladders. And it was really uh, a problem. It meant that the fire just continued to spread. So that led some people to come up with a brilliant plan of a way of, uh, of, of destroying the links between between buildings so the fire could no longer spread further outward. That was blowing them up. Yeah, they blowed them up real good with gunpowder. Now, again, the fire chief initially was very much against this because, frankly, a lot of the people who wanted to use this were not trained in the use of gunpowder. And as it turns out, if you are not trained in explosives, you have a very strong possibility of blowing yourself up along with whatever it is you are planning to destroy. And in fact, that there were many injuries reported for, as a as a, a result of some of the explosions, but it was an attempt to create what are called fire breaks. These are those those breaks between buildings so that the fire can, cannot jump from one building to the next. Uh, depending upon the report you read, this was fairly successful and it helped keep the fire under control. Uh, other reports say that it didn't, you know, that that it didn't have a, a a really noticeable effect on actually fighting the fire, but it certainly made it more complicated. The fire chief was overruled by the city government that said, you know, it's fine for them to use this. Uh, he was not entirely happy. Uh, the fire chief, by the way, his name is uh, was John Damrell. Uh, he was pretty much a, a a hero during this whole process. He was coordinating everything. However. Because the devastation was so vast, there were 776 buildings destroyed at around that number anyway. Again, the, sure. I see 770 to 800, depending upon the, the report. Uh, and, uh, and around $73 million in damages at that time. Although, um, only, and I mean, I mean, you know, any, and any deaths are tragic, but there only 13 people died in the fire, um, including two members of the Boston Fire Department. Yeah. Most of the buildings were in the commercial district, like we said, so they weren't residences. Mm-hmm. So if it had been in a residential area, obviously those numbers would be different. Uh, so that, considering the devastating nature of this fire, that was, that was, I, it's hard to call it a silver lining, but it could have been worse. It could have been much worse. Uh, so, Fire Chief John Damrell had warned the city. He had tried to work against some of the plans of using gunpowder. He coordinated the efforts. How was he rewarded? Well, he he went on to organize the National Association of Fire Chiefs, but uh, 1872 was when the fire broke out, and by 1874, he had been replaced as Fire Chief of Boston. 
congratulations, Fire Chief, for doing a great job and telling us all the things that we needed to hear. Uh, because it wasn't political, we're going to put all the blame on you for the fact that this fire was bigger than what it should have been. Instead of crediting you, we're going to put the blame on you and uh, you lose your job. He would actually go on to become the building inspector for Boston. Like instead of becoming better, he actually took on a different role and made sure that building codes and fire codes were enforceable by law. Right, right. He he went at the system in a different way and said, well, if you're not going to listen to me this way, then I can do it this way. I can affect change. I can at least make this enforceable to make sure this doesn't happen again. So because of the work he did and the work of other people who uh, who followed him, the the building codes for Boston changed. The materials used in construction changed. The the actual uh, uh, the way things were constructed so that they weren't built necessarily so close together uh, that changed. Um, another interesting point early on with this whole fire system, perhaps uh, you could call it ironic that the the central system we had talked about the central office where everything came through was actually originally housed in an extremely flammable building. <laughs> It was in a building that was crammed up against other buildings and could have easily caught on fire, but uh, eventually was moved to a different location and, in fact, is now part of the Parks Department. It's still operational. I mean, this is still a working mm-hmm. fire mm-hmm. Uh, safety department. And it's in a Fenway, I believe. And it, it because it's in the parks, that means no one else can build there. So it, it the closest building is 250 feet away from this. And that is regulated in, in the laws forever. Yeah, so there's not it, – it's made out of flame retardant material and it's not close to any other building. So now – at least the fire alert system won't catch on fire, yeah, which would be, you know, interesting, like to get an alert, like be a be a firefighter and you get an alert. And say, There's a fire. Where is it in the fire station? <laughs> that bites. Let's go. <laughs> All right. So uh, now we get back over to some more develops developments in this system. Now, in remember, the right? Yeah. The te- the basic principles remain the same, mm-hmm. but the, the interface changes. And another change happened in 1881. Uh, that was the first keyless alarm box where people said, you know, maybe something that could help make alarm boxes more effective is if we didn't have to worry about where the key is right. when we need to signal the to alarm. Open it up, yeah. Uh, now, of course, this does obviously open up the possibility for pranks or mistaken uh, calls. There might be, an, you know, the occasional alarm where someone legitimately thought something was on fire and it turns out it's not. Uh, so it's not like I don't want to suggest that only hooligans were going around pulling fire alarms, uh, but also they changed the actual handle. They went to the T handle approach, which uh, is shaped like the letter T, which is why it's called that. So you've probably seen ones like this. It's a little lever and you pull it down and that's what activates it. But otherwise, it did the exact same thing as the previous generations. Um, the first one that had this kind of uh, uh, alarm system was box number 42, which is at the intersection of Tremont and Winter Streets. And by the way, when I start mispronouncing Boston streets, uh, forgive me. I'm sure that both of us have been doing a whole lot of that. We apologize. I've only been to Boston once, and I did not go to that many streets. It's a lovely city. I went to an aquarium and a science museum, both of which were lovely. On May 2nd of 1881, the city government ordered that all fire alarm boxes were to be painted Red instead of black, which probably made it a lot easier to find them at night in the dark. Yeah. yeah, yeah. When you're when you're told at night that the nearest alarm box is a block away and it's <laughs> it's painted black, you might start to consider certain phrases in your mind 
to describe the decision to paint said boxes black in the first place. Right. Uh, they would later be painted green and are now back to red again as of this current date. Oh, I didn't even know they had changed to green. Yeah, that's I, I don't think it was for another another while. Um, and, and at this point in time, um, systems, these um, these game well systems were in place in 103 cities. Wow. Uh, in 1882, they decided to install another new technology as part of the central office, this one called the telemaphone. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Ahoy hoy. Uh, so the telephone was uh, ordered to be installed at the central office uh, in the fire alarm headquarters, which was different than the central office, and most fire houses or fire stations. But it would take uh, about three years before they actually managed to outfit all of the, the system with these new fangled telephones mm-hmm. um, during during that decade from from about 1880 to 1890 um, the, the the number of telegraph fire alarm systems jumped from about a hundred to about 750 wow. across the country Incredible. Um, about five of those game well I, I'm sorry about 500 of those game well and, a, and another 200 something 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 um, rival companies that were so starting to open up clearly game well was uh, ahead of the game mm-hmm. one might say well ahead of the game. Goodness. Lauren wouldn't, but I would. I would not at all. Uh, 1892. That's when the first underground fire alarm cable was installed. Now, all previous cables, of course, were strung out overhead. They were, uh, you know, across rooftops. They had their own glass insulators that held them. This one was a, a cable that would go under the ground. The first box connected to the underground cable was box number 54 on Beach Street in 1893. And a year later, several alarm boxes were equipped with red electric lamp indicators. So now you have the uh, the audible alarm as well as the red light that could light up when an alarm box was triggered. Uh, by 1907, all of the alarm boxes in Boston were equipped with keyless doors. So that finally rolled out after you know more than a decade. And then uh, in 1925... Uh, the current fire alarm office of Boston opens. Now you remember we said that it moved from. That's the one we were talking about. It's in Fenway yeah. Park, and um, it's it's got that good cushy zone around it. Yep, and it's uh, it it took all of two minutes when it officially opened before the first alarm came in. So eight a.m. it opens. Eight o two they get their first alarm. Wow. Yeah, uh, and um, it was from box twenty three twenty eight, which was located at Westland Avenue. Probably still is. <laughs> Probably. I doubt that Boston has moved around that much. I have not noticed it doing so. They myself. could have renamed a street. That sometimes happens. Um, uh, and it's and it's still as of as of nineteen twenty five, Boston was still the only city with a telegraph alarm system that made this paper record. Wow. That is incredible. Because that paper record is important. It definitely I mean that's a historical document all on its own. Mm-hmm. And again, by looking at that record over lengths of time, you could see if there were parts of the city that perhaps needed to be looked at more closely because of the frequency of fires that are breaking out. Uh, So it's kind of interesting to me that that they were the only ones really doing it at that point. It's it's, it's a vague possibility that that, um, Gamewell exaggerated that figure. (laughs) For the purposes of... I I believe the document I read it in was a pamphlet um, that had been put out by Gamewell. That's fair. Well, let me ask you this. Because I've got a huge jump in time now from 1925 to 1983. Do you have anything you want to fill in between those years? I do not. It was it was a boring time for alarm telegraph systems. Right. I mean, we had a couple of world wars and a depression in there. But other than that, and maybe, you know, some 
occasional fires. But beyond that, I, I, I guess we should mention that, you know, that this was when, uh, you know, during that time we went from the, what, 750 something to over 2000. Sure. Boxes yeah. or and, bo- box systems across right. the country. And also by by the time you get to 1983, there were a lot of cities that had installed the telegraph systems that were now decommissioning them. But we'll talk more about that toward the end because there's some interesting facts and figures about that. Right. Okay, so 1983, the Boston Fire Commissioner George Paul announced plans to phase out this alarm system, which was over a century old, almost, it's like 131 years old at this point. Uh, he, had pl- he said that he wanted to phase it out over the following seven years, so it would have concluded in 1990. Now, why would he want to get rid of a system that had been in working order for more than a century? Well, the working order was not hugely working. There were a lot of problems. Yeah, first of all, he said that there were that the the vast majority of alarms that were coming in through this system were false alarms. Whether those were pranks or mistakes doesn't really matter. He was saying that over. 75% of all alarms received through the system were false. And and that furthermore, each false alarm was costing uh, the city like 700 bucks. Yeah, which meant that it cost the taxpayers 700, 700 bucks, bucks per false alarm. And uh, and that's because you figure out the cost of the firefighters, uh, the, the fuel needed for the fire engine, all the equipment, mm-hmm. and then uh, the, just the time wasted. Right, right. So that was kind of a figure that he had he had cited in his decision to phase this out. And he said that only 2.4% of all structural fires in 1982 were reported through the use of these boxes. So not only are most of the reports coming in false, the ones that are actual fires, that only 2.4% were coming in through boxes in the first place. Otherwise, they were getting them through other means, whether it was radio, telephone, whatever. But they were getting their information in other ways. So he was saying that it's an obsolete system that is uh, giving us more false alarms than uh, than active ones. We should get rid of it. Now, despite this, the system stays in place. So even though he cites this plan and he gives his reasons, and they seem like pretty solid ones, nothing happens. I don't know the reason for that. I don't know if uh, there was a lot of resistance. Bostonians can sometimes be considered a somewhat stubborn lot. Perhaps some kind of a, a historical society lobby. Um, Boston is also a very, very big city for, for historical preservation. Yep, yep. Um, maybe they're just full of beans. It is bean town. Face it. All right, so uh, anyway, the system doesn't go anywhere. It stays in place. So 1988, Boston does something incredible. They update the system with electronic decoding terminals. And at that time, there were about 1,500 or so fire alarm boxes on streets and another 1,000 in public and private buildings. There are more now, uh, but 2,500 or so total across the city. They maintain uh, the fact that it is um, independent of telephone and grid electric lines. Right, meaning that if the telephone system fails, if the electric system fails, this system will still work. Mm-hmm. That's actually one, probably one of the reasons why it stayed in place, because even though you could argue that uh, you were getting more false alarms than real ones and that you were getting most of your information through other means anyway, this was a reliable 
method of reporting a fire that was completely independent of other systems. So even if other systems failed, you could still rely on this. Right. I'm guessing that's one of the reasons why it remained active even after the fire commissioner had planned on phasing it out. Uh huh. Now, um, um, uh, around around this time ish, I, I know definitely as of 2003, uh-huh. um, uh, Gamewell had been acquired by a company called Honeywell International, um, and no longer makes new telegraph systems. Right. However, they do still continue to support the existing ones. Right. Yeah, that warranty was serious business. Let me tell you, way better than my TV. Uh, yeah, so Honeywell now is the uh, the parent company, the owner of the Gamewell company. Um, and in 2013, early this year, we're recording this in 2013. For those of you in the future who are listening back on this episode, hi, where's my jetpack? But in 2013, the Boston government actually opened up a, a, a forum of dialogue and said, hey, Bostonians, how would you update our fire alarm system? What would you do to bring it into the 21st century? What capabilities should it have? What what uh, technology should it be built upon? So now we're talking about finally, perhaps, switching this from the telegraph system it's been based on since 1852. So we might actually see a new fire alarm system rolled out in Boston over the next few years that will be uh, similar perhaps, to what is exists now, but built on a completely different technology. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't be surprised if it still had its own independent power system so that it could maintain, because I think that's one of the most important parts. Right, I think that's redundancy. why. Uh-huh, sure, sure. And and a lot of towns are taking down their, their telegraph systems these days in favor of radio signal alarm systems. Mm. Um, you know, and, and like we've said, the, those, those benefits are really just that you know, if, if there's an earthquake and it brings telephone and power down, or um, if there's some kind of computer glitch that brings down a 911 system. Mm-hmm. Um, both of these things are things that have happened. And uh, uh, a 1989 earthquake in San Francisco, a 2004 glitch in the New York City uh, 911 system. Sure. The boxes can still operate and can still get messages that will save lives I mean, and property. We've even seen, you know, during big catastrophes or even just large events, where cellular networks get completely sure. overwhelmed mm-hmm. with traffic and you can't get a call in or out of them, this would still be a system that would work under that. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, more and more people are moving away from landlines. But just because you have a cellular phone doesn't mean that you can always depend upon it. Right. There are going to be times where systems are going to get overwhelmed. So having an independent system that doesn't need to tie into any of those things mm-hmm has a lot of appeal. Sure. Uh, the upkeep on them is very expensive, though. Sacramento is hoping hoping that dismantling its system is going to save the city um, $500,000 per year um, wow. in upkeep. So, so, so cheap to install, expensive to maintain. I see how they get you. <laughs> well, you know, the, the wires are susceptible to wear, and unlike other utility systems that a city would buy into, it's, it, it's a unitasker. It's right. not. It's not like this can be used for anything else. Alton Brown would hate it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, thank you to Alton Brown for for the word unitasker. unitasker that yeah. was totally what I was thinking of. Yeah, the, um, the there are a lot of uh, cities that are turning those old boxes into art. They, right, they make sure. it into like an art uh, exhibit. So mm-hmm. you know they're not getting rid of the infrastructure in the sense of like taking down the boxes. They're, they're just, just turning them into letting something it else. Not be updated anymore. Yeah, it's just becoming something that's meant for. Uh, Beautification. Yeah. 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 Uh, Speaking of historical, I wanted to end this kind of talking about the Boston Fire Museum. 
the website, by the way, was very helpful putting together a lot of the information for this podcast. So I recommend looking at it. But according to the website, the Boston Fire Museum has some of the old equipment from the 1852 system on display including a box transmitter, which was designed to retransmit information from alarm boxes to fire stations, and it's tied into the tapper circuit of the Boston fire alarm system. Which oh, so means that whenever anything goes off, it rings the bell. It rings the, the bell and types out the tape. So oh, you can actually cool. see, if you can read the Morse code, you'll see which box number triggered that alarm. So you, if you are there when the alarm is triggered, it'll go off and you'll be able to see it in action. Uh, I don't recommend that you orchestrate this so that you can actually see it. Uh, I hope that if you do go to the museum, that it remains inactive because that means there's not a fire, hopefully. But, uh, but still kind of a cool thing. I think it's kind of neat that it's tied, it's actively tied into the system. Now, nothing is dependent upon this particular piece of technology. It's right. just, it's just tapped into it's it. It's just fun. Yeah. For a certain amount of fun. You're like, wow, it still works. And then you think, ooh. Oh. That either means someone's being naughty or someone is on fire. I hope everyone's okay. Yeah, exactly. So it's that weird moment of, wow, oh. But anyway, I thought it was really cool. So anyway, that wraps up this discussion. I love this topic. I love taking stuff that has this historic aspect to it, something that I didn't really know very much about before we started researching it. In fact, uh, this was all new information for me. So, And, of course, I love learning things. It was really exciting. Guys, if there's anything along these lines, something that is historical and technological, keep in mind we are a technology podcast, that you would like to hear more about, something that you've always heard about and you thought, how did that work and what was it successful? Let us know. Send us an email. Techstuff at discovery.com. Or you can get in touch with us on Facebook or Twitter, just like uh, our listener did. Hey, did you ever figure out who it was? Yes, that was listener Ben via Twitter. Uh, Ben, thanks so much for the suggestion. I know that this is a little bit different from what you asked, but I hope you enjoyed it. So be like Ben. Contact us. Remember, Facebook and Twitter, we are TechStuffHSW. And Lauren and I will talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 